Well, if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Tonight we begin um, a walk to the cross. We're going to take the weeks from now until the week after Easter to walk through a few chapters in Matthew. Uh, We're going to begin tonight in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, We read verses 21 to 28 earlier. Daniel did that for us. Uh, I'm actually going to go back to verse 13. Uh, but before we, um, before we move any further, I'm simply going to read verse 24. So if you would stand with me in the honor of God's Word and the reading of it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself... Take up his cross and follow me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Well, Father, in these moments, uh, would you bless the reading and the preaching of your word? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you bend our wills? To yours, may we bring ourselves under the authority of your word, and may we be different as we leave. Speak to us now, and Father, would you remove any hindrance or any distraction that we might see Jesus? And it's in his name that we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman said this, Christianity is a serious and demanding religion. And when it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. And it's another religion altogether because, and again, in his words, When presented as entertainment, everything that makes Christianity historic and profound and sacred is stripped away. There is no ritual, no dogma, no tradition, no theology, and above all, no sense of spiritual transcendence. Now when he wrote that back in 1985, Mr. Postman Uh, was talking primarily of the problems associated with Christianity as it was presented on television. My, how far we've come since then, right? Because now it's not just about television, but it's how Christianity is promoted on all forms of social media. And not only on social media, it's how Christianity is promoted within sanctuaries and worship centers and strip malls and movie theaters or wherever people might gather to experience a 2019 version of worship. And I submit to you that our passage tonight presents something very, very different from that. As a matter of fact, the passage validates Mr. Postman's comments. Our passage presents Christianity as serious and demanding, not easy or amusing. And we see that in who Jesus is, what He came to do, and how we are to respond in light of that. 
And that, of course, will be our outline this evening as we look at following Jesus. Who is he? What did he come to do? And how are we to respond? Let's begin first at the question, who is Jesus? As I mentioned back in June, if you remember, we were here back in June at our very first worship service, our monthly worship service. And at that time, I uh, mentioned that this portion of Matthew, or here in Matthew uh, 16, we find ourselves in a transition in the book because it is a transition in Jesus' ministry. He's transitioning from a larger, more widespread ministry or a a wide-ranging group or public ministry to a more confined, uh, moving from masses to a more narrow focus of private ministry among only a few. And we find ourselves here in verse 13, Jesus is walking with the disciples and he asks them a very powerful question. It's a very straightforward question. It's a matter of fact question. And he he simply says, who do people say that the son of man is? Uh, And we read in the language that they all begin to chime in one after the other. We're not sure who of the 12 answer, but some say, well, it was John the Baptist. Some say it was Elijah. Some say it was Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And in other words, everybody has their own opinion, Jesus. Everybody has, has kind of made up something on their own. It might be something based on something that they've heard. It may be something based upon their, uh, their own intellect or the limited knowledge that they have. It may be just simply a figment of their imagination. But they are responding And if you remember, I said then, and I say again tonight, that sounds very familiar. It sounds very familiar of the time that we now live in. Muslims believe one thing. Jehovah's Witnesses believe another. Mormons believe one thing. Hindus believe another. And even those who aren't associated with any kind of formal religion have an opinion of who Jesus is. Unfortunately, there are many in the visible and local church today who profess to believe something about him as well, other than what Scripture portrays him to be, or describes him to be, or reveals him to be. And they, too, are basing their opinions on their own ideas, and on their own intellect, and their own limited knowledge. They don't go to the Word of God to find out who Jesus is revealed to be. They, they are left with their own imaginations. And some would even ask, some would be bold enough to even ask, why is that a problem? And we would answer that it's a problem because Jesus says it's a problem. And we know he says it's a problem because he follows up that question and he asks them, well, okay, but who do you say that I am? Apparently, all of those answers are not correct. So who do you say that I am? You have been with me. You have heard me. Who am I? And of course, that's plural. He's asking the group, and Peter jumps in on behalf of, of the group to answer. And he says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, there, and that answer is so full of meaning. We could take, and I'm going to take a little bit of time, what does he say by making that statement? And he's saying, well, you're the long-awaited one. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. You're the one that Isaiah spoke of when he said, the one that the Spirit of the God is upon. You are the one that the Lord has anointed to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. 
and to open the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord forever. In other words, you're the divine Son of God. You're the begotten of God. You are the promised one, the king from the line of David. You are the one who fulfills that covenant from the tribe of Judah. And there was no hesitation there. Just as quickly as Jesus asks the question, Peter chimes in with his answer. But it was more than just simple verbal assent, intellectual assent. And we know that from verse 17 because Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, on this profession of faith, I am going to build my church and the gates of hell will not come against it. Death itself will not come against the church that's based upon this profession of faith. Based upon who I am. So Peter's blessed. He's blessed and he should be happy because God has turned his face toward him. He'd, he'd been gracious to him. He, he expresses that he, Peter would not have come up with this answer on his own. That this is something that's been revealed to him by the Father. God has revealed this to him. His heart has been changed. He's been given sight to see. He's been given ears to hear. It's just as he said to Nicodemus. He said, the spirit has moved. You've been reborn. So rejoice, Peter. Be glad. You've been given the gift of faith and you've acted on that and you've spoken and you know who I really am. And it is on that profession of faith. It's on that right profession that I am going to build the church. In other words, Jesus says that any individual that professes anything... I mean, we see in this, in these few, few first verses, we see that if anyone professes him to be anything other than what the Bible reveals him to be, is not a Christian. And that, and that makes us tense up, doesn't it? Because it's not up to us to determine who he is on our own or to define who he is or describe him based on what we think or what we desire him to be. He's not a creation of our own imagination. And Peter's profession is made upon that profession, is, is made upon the fact this is who Jesus really is. And I understand that that type of definitive, absolute statement is not popular today. To say that outside of these, outside of these bounds, it is impossible to be a believer, and, and that brushes up against us. But regardless of the response that we might receive, regardless of how people might push back, it is something that we are to stand upon, we are to, to live by it, we are to speak and act as if it were unequivocally true, because it is. We must stand firm upon it and we must do so, but we must do so lovingly, graciously, and meekly. But stand firm nonetheless. So in, in light of that, I... Uh, I must ask, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God? That He is our Savior? Who do you say that He is? 
But Christianity is more than just about who Jesus is. It's also about what he came to do. It's also about what he has done. Look at verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Now, up until that point, Jesus has... um, has chosen to reveal his death and resurrection through parables. He hasn't been exactly clear. He has been sharing about it, but he's done so in a way that for us, post-cross, we understand, but for those pre-cross, they would have struggled a little bit. They wouldn't really have known. And for example, he, he describes the bridegroom uh, being taken away in Matthew chapter 9. He describes um, uh, the sign of Jonah in chapter 12 and then earlier in this chapter that we're looking at tonight. But it, at this point, he just he stops simply alluding to it and kind of walking around it and speaking of it, but, but not being as clear. Matthew says he begins to show him or them about his death and resurrection. The word means to expose the eyes, to give evidence or proof, to show by words or to teach. In other words, from this point forward, he's going to be very clear about what must take place. This is actually the first of three occasions when he just says it specifically. He's going to say in very clear language, I must suffer and die. But not only that, he must be raised from the dead. And he's not going to do that in roundabout ways. He's going to be specific. And, and notice how Matthew describes this. He says he must. Jesus begins to show them that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer under the Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes. And he must be killed. And so we ask, why? Why must all of that happen? And there are just simply a couple reasons as we look at tonight as we're moving through this passage. First is, God's counsel and decree ordained it. His counsel and decree ordained it. It's always been that way from from prior to the foundation of the world. It's always been plan A for him to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die and to rise again. It's never been plan B. His death and resurrection was the predetermined plan of God. And while we read here that Peter didn't understand that at that particular time... He will get it. He will get it. Listen to his words post-ascension. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. He's preaching in Jerusalem. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He must go because it was God's plan for him to go. It demanded it. It was ordained by it. His counsel and decree ordained it. Secondly, God's justice, mercy, and grace demanded it. His justice, justice, mercy, and grace demanded it. God being just could not turn a blind eye to sin. As Paul says in Romans 3, the wages of sin is death. A price had to be paid. Atonement had to be made. A full and final payment had to be presented. But God, while being completely holy and just, was also perfectly merciful and gracious. And so out of that mercy and grace, He would provide that atoning sacrifice on behalf of His people. 
God would go to great lengths to provide that atoning sacrifice. And that atoning sacrifice would be the Lord Jesus Christ. He would take on, it was Jesus who would take on the curse of the law. It was Jesus who would provide that sacrifice that the Old Testament law, that the ceremonial section of the law pointed to. Every, everything about that pointed to the Lord Jesus. And so he, it was Jesus who would do what we could not do for ourselves. He willingly, obediently, mercifully, and lovingly died and rose again from the dead. On behalf of us. On behalf of sinners. So that we might be forgiven. That we might be redeemed. And adopted. And sanctified. And glorified. As we just spent our time in Ephesians learning and reminding ourselves of. It was through Jesus that we've been set free from the bondage of sin and the curse of the law. And brothers and sisters, we must never lose sight of the importance of that cross. Never should we lose the importance. It is essential. It is pivotal to our salvation and the salvation of of those family members you're praying for, of your friends that you're praying for, of, of those who are lost, of everyone and anyone. There is Salvation is of no other way. It is through the cross of Christ. It is not found in ourselves. It is not found in anything that we can do. It is what, in what Christ has done. And we don't need to give in. We need to make sure that we hold firm and understand that we, we do not need to be saved from difficult life circumstances. We do not need to be saved from bad marriages, dead-end jobs, poor communication, or a lack of finances. We need to be saved from our sin. The issue is not circumstantial and outside of us. The the, the problem is spiritual and internal. And it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus, it's the cross that is, is the only way that that is taken care of. On your behalf and mine. He came as a substitute. He did more than come to show us, uh, to give us an example of how to live. He did more than show us of how much God loves us. He did do those things. But church, he, He came to be a substitute for us. Our only hope is in the Lord Jesus. He who knew no sin but became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says that it's his death and resurrection that's of first importance. And, and Paul also says that this gospel, because it is absolute, right, it, it becomes a stumbling block to others. It's a stumbling block to some. It's folly to others. People are going to push back. But it's the gospel that Jesus preaches. It's the gospel that we should preach and share. Because it's the gospel that's the power into salvation. And so my question is, are you trusting in Christ and His cross for your salvation? Are you trusting in the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? Are you trusting in His death and resurrection for your salvation? And the question that we're now left with is, how are we to respond? We've heard the truth uh, and the necessity of the cross uh, pretty frequently, as we should and as we need to. 
We need to hear it all the time. But I think it would help us to, to step back for a minute and think about it in terms of how the disciples would have heard this. This would have completely shocked them and turned their world upside down. Um, we have to remember that in their minds, the, the Messiah was going to deliver them um, militarily, politically, economically, uh, socially. You know, they were expecting the Messiah to go to Jerusalem and be enthroned and to rule. And they've just heard that he must go to Jerusalem that he might die. And they've heard that he's going to die at the hands of the religious leaders. They hadn't yet put it together that he, he had come to, as I read earlier, he had come to proclaim um, that the poor, that he, he came to proclaim the good news to the poor, but they hadn't put it together yet that that, that not only meant the poor in wealth, but also the poor in spirit. They hadn't put it together that while he uh, had come to bind the brokenhearted, that that was more than, or not just simply those who grieved the sadness of circumstances, but that he'd come to, uh, he had come to uh, bind up the brokenhearted who mourned their sin. They hadn't put it together yet that, that the freedom that he would proclaim and the prison doors that he would throw open are for those who were in the bondage of sin and death and needed to be released Their sin and death had enslaved them and He had come to set them free. And it just wasn't clicking yet. They didn't realize, and they they really didn't realize that all this was going to happen as Jesus came. Uh, The Messiah would come as a suffering servant that we looked at back in December in fulfillment of Isaiah 52 and 53. They hadn't quite realized that it was... It was the Messiah, it was Jesus himself who would bear our griefs, carry our sorrows, be stricken and afflicted and smitten, pierced through for our transgressions and for our iniquities. And so the, the picture that Peter and the disciples had of the Messiah was very fleshly and very earthly, not heavenly, not spiritual. And so despite the fact that he has just made this very profound statement about who Jesus is, and again, it was, a, it was a divinely revealed profession. Matthew says in verse 22 that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I laugh at that, not to take it lightly, but just the audacity. Peter pulls aside the Son of God to say, you've got it wrong. Pulls aside the Son of God to say, no, sorry, um, there's another way. He, he, the word is he censures him. God forbid that you do it. May it never be. You know, he hears the word die and then forgets everything after that. He doesn't hear that he's going to rise again. And you can imagine Jesus interrupts him, you know, grace. But if, I mean, if that wasn't enough... Jesus just stops him and interrupts him and turns to him. I mean, I can imagine Peter has pulled, pulled, his, pulled him aside, put his arm around him, and, and says, may it never be, Lord. And Jesus stops and, and, and looks at him. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. This, this 
Peter, who was the rock and represented the others and had just made this confession or profession of faith in him as the Messiah. Uh, And it was the confession that the Lord praised and was going to build his church on. That rock is now a stumbling block. He's in the way. Because Peter's thinking temporally. He's not thinking eternally. He's, not think, he's thinking physically and he's not thinking spiritually. And he had the person of Christ in mind, but not his work in mind. Peter had his own way of thinking and it wasn't God's way of thinking. And so Jesus let him know in no, no, no uncertain terms. that This is not correct. Anything less then God's plan is not just wrong, but evil. I mean, that's the strength of the statement. It's not just wrong, it's, it's evil. He sees, as I mentioned last week as we were wrapping up, not last week, but two weeks ago in, in Ephesians chapter 6 in spiritual warfare, Peter looks behind, I mean, Jesus looks behind Peter and sees Satan in the heavenly places. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because Peter is saying the exact thing that Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness. There's another way. There's a better way. Don't go to the cross. Take another route. And Jesus, here as well as in the wilderness, said, that's not the plan. Jesus would not be thwarted. He was not going to bypass the cross. And brothers and sisters, to believe and promote anything other than salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's work for our redemption alone via the cross is is not just false, it's evil. And that's why Paul says in Galatians that any other gospel is anathema, it's to be cursed, it's to be condemned because it is no gospel at all. And we need to be firm and absolute. About that. Well, Jesus doesn't leave it there. At this point, he turns from looking at Peter and turns to look at the group. And he repeats and expands on what he said in Matthew chapter 10. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I don't know about you, but there is nothing easy or amusing about that statement. It is serious and demanding. It's not a call to make a decision and life will be easier. It's not a call to to make a decision and lead your best life now. It's not a life where we look forward to health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not a life in which we continue to seek our, our own interests, our own desires, our own wants. It's not a life of self-preservation. It's not a life of self-promotion. It's not a life of where taking up your cross simply means that we need to put up with a difficult coworker, or put up with a nagging spouse, or, man, we, we're having to work overtime, or anything else that we lightly describe as bearing our cross. Because, listen, that might make it more palatable, 
but it diminishes the call that we're being called to as followers of the Lord Jesus. And even worse, it trivializes what Christ has done for us through his cross. But it's also, we, we want, I want to be clear, it's also not a life of asceticism or isolation or self-loathing. In other words, um, it's not a life in which we seek to suffer. It's not a life that we seek to be as uncomfortable as possible. It's not a life that we abstain from certain God-given gifts or refuse to live in our God-given freedom in order to purge ourselves in some way of sin. As if we can pay some sort of penance in an effort to present ourselves holy before God. It's not what he's talking about. But he is talking about a life of self-denial and submission and suffering. There's no way around it. It's a life that seeks first his kingdom and his righteousness. It's a life that, that seeks... Um, you know, his kingdom come and His will be done. It's a life of concentration on the spiritual and on the eternal. It's a life of putting the, the interests and wants and needs and desires of others before our own. It's, it's a life of, of ongoing striving to live a life worthy of the call that we have been talking about over the last several months. And it's a life of striving because we're in this. It's a life of frustration because we go back and forth between what we want to do and what we don't want to do and and doing what we don't want to do and not doing what we do want to do and and that back and forth of that. And it gets frustrating. And so it is a life of, of ongoing repentance and mortifying of our sin. And that's a struggle. It's not easy. It's a life of laying down ourselves for the sake of Christ. It's a life of holding loosely to that which we have. It's a life of taking firm stands, again, meekly, but resolutely. It's a life of nonconformity. It's a life that includes a willingness to, to not fit in and to be labeled as and to be potentially ostracized, shamed and ridiculed, and, and this is hard for us to understand, but a willingness to even be martyred. That's the call. And how do we do that? And how do we, how do we maintain that focus? And what do we do when we fall back into what's easier and, and fall back into what's less demanding because we all do it? We do. And two things that I would like to suggest. First is that we continue to look to Christ and His cross. Continue to look to Christ and His cross. In the words of the author of Hebrews, consider Christ. Consider Christ. We look to the one who did what? As I told the children, he denied himself. He took up his cross for us. We look to Jesus who, who the writer of Hebrews says, learned obedience through suffering. And so what we do, we look to Christ and his cross and we ask ourselves, who are we to think that we should expect anything less? 
We look to the cross and in the words of the song we sang earlier, as we're looking at the cross, we say, when the woes of life o'ertake us, hopes deceive and fears annoy, never shall the cross forsake us. Lo, it glows with peace and joy. We look to the cross because bane and blessing, pain and pleasure be the cro- uh, by the cross are sanctified. Peace is there that knows no measure, joys that through all time abide. We look to the cross and we see the devastation and at the same time we see what it provides for us. Because of what the Lord has intended. And so we look to the cross and it gives us hope in the midst of pain and trials and suffering in this life. And we must understand that without it, our circumstances and trials and sufferings are unnecessary, random and cruel. We must focus and, and, and keep our eyes upon the cross of the Lord Jesus. And secondly, we need to look to His promise. Look to His promise. It's the long-term, spiritual, eternal promise on which we rest. We rest in the truth that what is to come in Christ's return far outweighs anything that we might be experiencing in the here and now. We trust that our eternal souls are, are more important, vastly more important than our our temporal or temporary creature comforts and and ease and reputations. We have joy today and hope for tomorrow because of that reward that awaits us is so far greater, far surpasses anything that we might gain or possess right now. And definitely far more than we deserve. Calvin once said, we are justified freely because God accepts us irrespective of our merits. Right? Thanks be to God for that, right? But he goes on. He says, and yet, according to his good pleasure, he repays our works with a reward which we do not deserve. And what ultimately is that reward? What is the reward? Christ Himself. Christ Himself is the reward. One day we will see Him as He is. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. We will see the Lord Jesus Christ. Following is serious and demanding, but He is more than worthy of that following. May we look to Him now and may we rest in that promise of seeing Him once again that we may follow. May our following be so. Let's pray together.